Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Seaweed Brain, the podcast where we have spent three and a half years talking through Rick Riordan's books and are now making our way through the brand new Percy Jackson and the Olympian television show. Today, we're going to be talking about episode four. We have two special guests, one returning, one new. We have a brand new Midwestern American city to explore. Stick around. Welcome back, everybody. Big morning. Big morning here at Seaweed Brain HQ. And I really think it's now is an appropriate time to just tell the internet that Lin-Manuel Miranda followed us on Instagram. And I think that is so, so unbelievable. Anyway, if we're chaotic today, that's kind of why. My name is Erica. I am co-host of this podcast, joined as always by Carter. Hi. It's me. I'm Carter. And we have two special guests today. We have returning, excellent, wonderful, venerable Percy Jackson lover, Jake Sweat. What's up, Jake? Wow, what a title. Thank you. <laughs> Hello. And we have Yunwen. Hello, brand new guest in the house. Hi, everyone. <laughs> nice to meet everyone. I'm excited to be here. We haven't been doing too much getting to know you on our analysis episodes because, as y'all listeners know, they have been running long. But... It is really exciting to have a brand new guest today. And the way that Yunwen and I met is actually through this podcast. Oh, yeah. So I was on a run in Central Park and I could not focus. Sometimes you can't focus. And I was like, I'm looking for a podcast to listen to. And what do I find but Seaweed Brain Podcast? I turn it on. I'm addicted immediately. And then I needed a part-time job. I was working at a bookstore at the time, Book Culture, and we were hiring. And you had commented on one of our TikToks, like, haha, are you guys hiring? And I was like, oh, I know that girl. She follows our podcast. I've, like, spoken to her online before. And then my boss was like, oh, you know her? And she's not, like, a murderer or something? Like, great. <laughs> I'll do an interview with her. And then we worked together. <laughs> Like and, now, and now we love each other. I am not a murderer, but I am a sunny angel aficionado. So welcome to any cute sunny angel followers on here. I will be saying hi to you guys on TikTok, but welcome to Seaweed Brain. You guys will love them. Influencers gotta influence. And welcome, everybody. You see, we <laughs> so as always, we want to thank our patrons at the beginning of this episode. We have some brand new people. We want to thank Chaotic Neutral, Beardic Knowledge, Dayton Nicholson, who is now a sustaining member of this podcast. Thank you so much. Laura, Rebecca, Ariel, Jordan, Oatmeal Lover, and Katrina. Thank you all for being a part of our Patreon, where we do weekly watch-alongs, and we have monthly special episodes and all kinds of other good stuff. Check it out, patreon.com slash seaweedbrain. A content note for today, because the truth is, Persebeth was Persebething in this episode. That is undeniable. We will have to discuss it, and we have been discussing it. But I did want to clarify that we are very committed as a podcast which has seek to answer the question, is Persebeth the greatest love story ever told? Whenever we say Persebeth, especially in the context of this first season, we are talking about Persebeth in the entirety of that relationship, you know, not just in its romantic development. Like why we think Persebeth is the greatest love story ever told is because of its partnership and the friendship at its core and the way that they work through their greatest traumas to like find trust in each other, the way that their fatal flaws complement each other, and the way they help each other choose what kind of hero they want to become in the world. So when we say Persebeth, we mean all of those things. But I think it is reductive to think that Persebeth is just romantic. I think that like goes against the core of this podcast. You know what I mean? Does this make sense? 
I do. I know exactly what you mean. As Becky and Rick said, at this point, they are 12. Yeah, they're 12. When they are 12, their relationship could be many things that all involve strong mutual understanding that comes from a place of weathering conflicts together and teaching each other about differing ideological perspectives. And while we have the historical context and knowledge of where this relationship goes in the books, we are appreciating it for where it is at right now. And when we say Persebeth, we're talking about the relationship between these two characters, not just the decades-long book romantic ship. (laughs) That's just a vocabulary-defining moment for us as we proceed into this conversation today. Carter, what is the teaser for this episode? It is a shot from the camera in the middle of the pool. It looks like a reference to the Percy Jackson original trailers, which you true, true elderly people like us might remember also involved like half of the trailer were like the swimming pool shots from the movie oh yeah logan lerman sitting at the bottom yes yeah in this case logan lerman is not sitting at the bottom of the pool maybe in a later <laughs> season that would have been a great <laughs> easter egg if he was just in the corner of the pool and like we never spoke to him <laughs> like another person at the ymca yeah <laughs> But we we have baby Percy struggling with a swim lesson, refusing to let go of the wall of the pool. This is fascinating. And I think that the the like contrast to the film is probably very deliberate here. Like they want to prime you with this idea of Logan Lerman sitting at the bottom of the pool to remind you that this is different, that we are conceptualizing Percy in a way that is not inevitable, where Percy's relationship to the water is not innately perfect yeah it doesn't come naturally to him from birth Mm -hmm. yeah i like that i like that part too again it goes into the theme of percy is a loser percy is not good at things and even this one thing that he is good at like the water thing he has to come to it you know like nothing comes to Mm -hmm. him naturally Mm -hmm. and that's such an important part of the like buildings roman of this story no totally totally the single mom of it all i think is oh my gosh what really gets me about this episode i mean we can say it off the bat like the theme of this episode is family, but I would say more specifically, mothers. We have the episode focusing around the mother of monsters, and we open with this like teaser scene of Sally in a very vulnerable, young, single mom experience. I loved when the other parents were looking at her. Like that moment of where you think everyone's staring at you, whether they are or not, like that perspective is so important. And I think any mother watching this with their kid too probably is like, I relate to that. This is something that's important. And they're building off of that like mother relationship continuously even though like sally's technically gone but she's there i felt like the act like the acting that moment was so good too like virginia she like especially when she's like kind of really trying to like tug them along and they're kind of like really not getting along at the start of it i don't know all these little things that they put in the story like that that you know we don't see in the book going through it i feel like really hammer away at this like relationship that they have that you feel so strongly for she's kind of so quick to be in and out of the picture so it feels like it's hard to develop that while the mm-hmm. you know what i mean while we're just like yeah. away from her for so long and taking the moments like that kind of really yes. like pulls her in. yeah i agree because sally she made such a big impression in the first episode alone you know we got such mm-hmm. a beautiful glimpse of her character from listening to logical to talking about not putting the hot peppers on the sandwich like she was very fully developed in one <laughs> episode appearance but having her come back in this episode just to get to know her even more and to remind us at this point in the quest what percy is here for he is really here to get his mom back They also open with this scene of the uncertainty of single motherhood to connect later on to when we get the mother of monsters and she has her monologue about her 
kind of struggle as well. Yes. For sure. The scene is here to prime us for Echidna, for Poseidon. Also to have come out of episode three, where Percy, and therefore us as viewers, are thinking a little bit about Sally as a victim, potentially, of at yeah. the very minimum, uh, imbalance of power in her relationship with Poseidon and recontextualizing what it was like for her to fall in love with a god and then raise this Mm -hmm. demigod child. We get to see her at the start of this episode struggling to raise Percy. Maybe this was one of those core memories that sticks out of that time. You know when you're little, seeing your parents not know what to do and that like sticks with you for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. This is probably one of his earliest memories. Like that moment for Percy saying, breathe, even if it was just for five seconds of him calming his mom down, like he remembers that forever. Mm-hmm. So much of the relationship with Percy and his mom, you really do kind of love to romanticize in your brain and think of it yes. as this like just constant kind of showering of love to each other because they are really like each other's rock. But I thought it was really neat too, like her kind of like tearing them away. That part in particular, like seeing them kind of like bicker almost. You pointed out this with uh, the first episode, you know, the way that she does kind of stand up to to Gabe, like mm-hmm. her kind of like fighting back that way, I think is really neat to see. But like between her and Percy is really neat to see because it kind of like helps deliver on more the end of like all this strength that she's really put into him, you know, as yes. a character leading up to that point. Cause it's like, where's this tough kid come from except for one person. Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's her. So I really, I really yeah. like that. I think that kind of shines in the acting too. It's just like, it's just this kind of like very human interaction, you know, and it's kind of got both, both love and conflict in it in moments. And it's really, I don't know, I really like it. It, The dialogue is healthy and it's loving. And you can see how from Percy's perspective, you would get from this to what we see in the books, which is a very singular idea of Sally from Percy. But because it's a TV show, we're zoomed out. And we get like a broader idea that almost is more reflective of Sally's perspective than Percy's in the scene about what it means for Sally to be a person who could be so close to godliness in this context right like yes you understand the kind of power that she has and the like quiet confidence the way that she can gather herself and deal with the situation that is like a little bit overwhelming in a way that's still like calm and respectful even as she's getting a little bit frustrated that helps you to understand like how sally could be in a relationship with Poseidon and come out like with a sense of self yeah and this focus more so on like her as a parent than even like seeing godly parents so far in the show Mm -hmm. really helped carry how much more like the human side of the story is important than like the godly side, I guess. And I know that we've Mm -hmm. talked about this in and out of these past few episodes and throughout our reading of the books, but I want to emphasize again how smart it is to play up Sally as a character in this season because ultimately what Percy chooses to do in The Last Olympian is to choose his humanity over his godhood right and to choose basically to choose sally over poseidon as far as his identity and what he values in life and so really establishing her as this like central like moral compass for him is so smart it really is giving laying the foundation Mm -hmm. now laying the foundation right now we hard transition from this to a nightmare which makes it feel like this is a recurring nightmare that maybe percy has and then we wake up and we're on the train this is the hook. It hooked me. I'm hooked. <laughs> the like aerial direct above shot of everybody in bed and Percy and Annabeth are perpendicular to one another 
okay, correct me if I'm wrong, right? But to me, the first real moment of like emotional vulnerability between Percy and Annabeth and the lightning thief is a similar scene, but much later when they're in the zebra car going to Vegas. And that's when she opens up about her dad and everything. And we moved this earlier. There is a conversation on the train, but I I think the amount of emotional vulnerability is different. Yeah, where like on the train, like we're getting more information about Annabeth and her backstory, but she is a lot more guarded where in this scene it is very clear that she has like a moment where she decides to let the guard down i love that they took it in a moment we can all relate to like where you're at like a sleepover with your friends and you're all talking before you go to bed and it's like like you're really taking the, the time to really think out like your day and how everything's yeah. going for you it's kind of funny because i think the analogy a lot of people would have for this is like a summer camp where um, we don't have these scenes because Percy is alone in his cabin. But um, vibe-wise, you know, we're there. <laughs> alone, floating on that pool of water because he has no bed. Yeah, no bed. <laughs> what we're getting in this conversation is a look at how Annabeth thinks about like love through the prism of her previous relationships. Mm-hmm. Specifically, like Percy asks about Thalia. They're talking about her. And Annabeth's, like, oh, it seems almost the highest compliment that she can give Thalia is that she made you earn her love and respect. And Percy's like, that seems to be a thing with you. You you seem to have a lot of relationships in your life where that is the case. Is that why you give me a hard time? Do I have to earn it with you too? And Annabeth sort of goes like, yeah, maybe. That uncertainty is so rich. This is the first time that she has not given you like, I am a full, complete person who is locked in yes. details unchangeable i'm a 12 year old who is the counselor of this cabin and you will see me as a full person and i will not let down my guard around you exactly and like with percy and the boys like even with something as simple as like deciding like what snacks to get even though she has the uncertainty she like has been very unwilling to ever communicate any of that to them and this scene she's letting that in a little bit like she she she's basically saying like this is how i think about like love and relationships in my life with like the people who helped to raise me, but maybe that's not right. And maybe I don't want to do that. She doesn't go that far directly, but you can see the cracks forming in the way that she is communicating and showing things that she is less sure about. Yeah. The one thing that we do have to point out, unfortunately, is that in this speech, she basically is like, this is the way it was with my mother. This is the way it was with Thalia. This is the way it was kind of with my dad, which is the next thing that we're going to get into. But she does say, this is not how it was with Luke. That was a different relationship because Luke always cared about me and advocated for me from the beginning. And the thing is also, if we haven't said it already, (laughs) this is a spoiler podcast for everything through potentially even the trials of Apollo, but definitely through the end of The Last Olympian. Turn back now, you've been warned. That doesn't ever change. Yeah. That never changes. He always loves her. He always is asking her to come with him. He always believes in her. She is right about that. Like, she's right about it, but it also makes the most sense for her continued difficulty around trust and, like, the related difficulty around small-c conservatism. Like, I need to keep people at an arm's distance and not assume anything good about, like, fundamental human natures because of this idea that, like, Luke was in her mental model a different idea about how mutual love and respect can work that kind of does not work out that well for her and i think is is going to cause her to to like you know one step forward two steps back this idea about like alternate ideas 
of like what a healthy relationship is supposed to look like. I think it's interesting too, because Luke gives his love, at least from what we've seen in these first four episodes, very freely. He's very introductory, you know, brings Percy in, actually guides him around the camp and helps him. But I think the way that we're seeing Percy and Annabeth's friendship start to form is Percy isn't trying to guide Annabeth anywhere or try to give her anything for anything in return like when he gave her the hat Mm -hmm. back he was like no i think this is something you like and i respect what you like and we're seeing that mutual respect start to show up and build the relationship and i think that's where we could see the difference with luke and i'm loving it yes mutual respect from two people who do not respect anybody you know (laughs) yes that is persebeth it's that and Think about the way that this builds in from the previous episode. Like, we were really setting up a good, strong ideological conflict between the two of them. And in the previous episode, having them fail to be able to communicate through those ideological differences. And we are starting to see now them come to a mutual understanding of the ways in which they have very different conceptions of the world and start to place value in, like, the other person's ideas and conceptions like percy here initially like when we begin with like the impersonance it is flatly and completely to the core disrespectful of like every everything that might challenge that perspective and that worldview and now we have him like starting to couch and like use softer language around annabeth and say like this is not how i see things but it's okay for us to not be on the same page about this, but like, I'm still going to tell you that I think that this is wrong and that this is not the way the relationship is supposed to go. And this is not how I feel about any of the people that I care about in my life, that like love is supposed to be unconditional. That, that, that like slight shift in the language and the ability of them to like sit there in peace and have that conversation. It gives, it gives Percy Jackson telling Sally at the pool, just breathe. Like they're communicating, mm-hmm. they're talking. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in a calm moment now. Yes, wow. Yeah, I do hate to draw the parallels between Annabeth and Sally, but, you know, they're there. Oh. That is there. We're noting that the stronger parallel that he's drawing is between Annabeth and the gods. Like, when he's having this conversation, oh, he's yeah. like, your oh, yeah. idea about relationships and respect and deference and conditionality of good relation is the same as the gods. Like, I, he says, like, what does he say? The way, the you, way you guys, guys all talk. talk. Where he's like lumping in Annabeth with like Athena and like Medusa and Chiron and like all of the like people in the godly world. When he was in school as a younger kid, like he always had to stick to himself because he was always getting kicked out of schools. Um, but he always knew he was a good kid. So like coming into a world mm-hmm. of gods and monsters, he knows what's good because he's always had to deal with figures of authority that kind of push him to the side or call him worthless. And he's like, well, no, I am worth it. And I am going to keep going and I'm going to do what's right. Even if you are the God of the sky, like even if you're Zeus, Mm -hmm. this is what makes Percy a protagonist, not him swinging a gold sword around and killing monsters, but that he has an innate understanding of what is right. And he has the ability as a person because of his personality to walk into a space and say, this isn't right. And we need to do Mm -hmm. something about it and to oppose literally every single person in that room as a 12 year old kid and say, you're not right. Like to your face, Mm -hmm. I know this isn't right because the way I was raised and the way I understand the world, that makes him a hero and that makes him a compelling protagonist. I'm really loving that like this show's about like gods and monsters and, you know, supernatural powers. And really, we've just been talking about 
emotional conflict. Exactly. That's the way that it's supposed to be. That is how you make good TV. And that's the last thing I wanted to say about this shot and this scene, which is what we were talking about, where it's like, there are kids at sleepaway camp. It's very... American road trip, just growing up together, mm-hmm. the building's Roman of it all. And then Annabeth turns to him and says, it's not just the gods that are like this. It's it's everyone. It's the real world. It's like this. In this moment where we are like divorced from the magic of it all and there's no monsters chasing us and we're just in this quiet moment reminds us like what this show is about. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and ultimately the lessons yeah. that the story are trying to teach us and grounding it in reality which is what we love about the story. Yes, mm-hmm. we do. We do. Before we get to the rest of the train, do we want to mention the fact that we get the Athena child lore? We do get the Athena child lore. Children are a gift from the brain. Um, and we get Annabeth turning that on its head. As, I wasn't a gift. I was a problem to the stepmother and the new family structure. I think this is really this is really nice on the heels of the Medusa discussion. That Annabeth might have as a trigger the idea that someone might like misinterpret Athena's will. Medusa does when she says, like, you know, whatever, like these powers are actually like a great gift that I can never be bullied. Uh, especially I wasn't just like you, sweetheart, I was you. She's starting to see herself mm-hmm. a little bit in oh, Medusa's yeah. Come on, experiencing empathy for another woman at a young age. Unlearning that internalized misogyny, my queen Annabeth. <laughs> It's great. Like, immediately her hand goes to her necklace. And if you are a diehard mm-hmm. fan of these books, you know that she is holding her father's ring in that moment. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. And then we get Grover, comedic relief. Incredible, perfect. The way it was Incredible. always meant to be. Successful. <laughs> He's so good at it. Did they, like, have to zoom out a little bit more to show us that, like, he was there the whole time? I know. They just zoom out a little bit more. It literally makes me think of the scene in Chalice of the Gods where Percy is imagining Grover falling asleep on a bench outside their house. That he lives in with <laughs> Annabeth, you know, <laughs> calling him in yes. for, for dinner in their old age. The seaside cottage. <laughs> it did feel like this could have been true, but Grover, but so endearing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Okay. We're in the lock. We're in breakfast on the train. We're talking about going to LA. We're talking about Annabeth thinks Percy is an idiot. <laughs> beautiful (laughs) and then we see some centaurs running in the distance the visuals which is their cue to have the pan conversation apparently centaurs are an endangered species because of uh habitat loss i do love how they kind of use this moment to hammer that down for him because i think like there's so much to all three of these characters that you're able Mm -hmm. to find out so much about in the book at once you know and finding space to do that, it's hard. And I think they're really not failing at like kind of hitting on every point of every one of these characters. Yes. This coming up in this episode is no coincidence. You know, I think mm-hmm, that bringing mm-hmm. up Pan in the episode where we are going to the gateway to the West, right? That's what it's called. Mm-hmm. A symbol of manifest destiny. And we are having Grover remark later on when we're in the arch about how it's a temple to a lot of things. And the relationship between settler colonialism and the destruction of natural resources is undeniable. And I am so excited to see where Grover goes with this pan plot Mm -hmm. in these potentially five seasons. Because it's not that those connections aren't made in the books, but we have an opportunity to like really amp them up, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in a Trials Mm -hmm. of Apollo type way, where we're talking about how figures with a lot of power are destroying the earth and are like inherently the enemies of the satyrs and the nature spirits and, and everything. We we have a quick follow-up discussion about the prophecy where Percy is concerned about the fact that we haven't had an answer, if you will, for this final line that he'll fail to say what matters most in the end. And Annabeth is basically just 
chilled out about it. She says, like, you don't you don't know what that means. This is maybe to me a little bit surprising from her. I thought it was surprising. Like, like it is what the textbook would say. Like, you you don't know what the prophecy line means. It's interesting that she's this chill. I think it makes sense. And, like, would not be inconsistent with Annabeth still in the future freaking out about prophecy lines and finding it difficult to have this level of remove. Chill. Chill. Yeah, and I think Annabeth would be more anxious if it was her prophecy. But since it's not her prophecy, Mm -hmm. she's able to kind of look at him Mm -hmm. and be like, just calm down. Like, it's going to be okay. And (laughs) spew what she feels is, like, her inherent wisdom, you know, onto him. I was going to say that, yeah. Okay, we're going to take an ad break here and then come back for some battle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, we're officially in Act 2. We have the attack on the train car. I don't remember exactly the events of the book. It's different. The train car was totally independent of the um, echidna encounter in the books, whereas now we are able to use it as a framing device for the entire episode because we've introduced it early, that they were chasing them into and through St. Louis, which I think makes a lot of sense for the decision to be like, this is going to be a full episode. I love the motif of traveling and continuous attack, <laughs> like the chase. Yeah, we're traveling west in this episode where we're going through the gateway to the west and talking about manifest destiny and, mm-hmm. and fighting our way all across the continental United States. It also is for Echidna to be training her child, as she mentions, like, my my daughter is learning to hunt, much in the same way that Sally Jackson was teaching her son how to swim at the beginning of the episode. Yes. We're just watching Mother's Mother. I love the ambiguity of the villain that is brought up through this with Auntie M going, well, you know, you're just like me, to be honest with you. And then Echidna going, listen, guys, like, I know what it's like to be pushed down and I want you guys to feel it as well. She wants people to understand what she went through, like as a mother. Right. Like that's, it's all perspective, right? (laughs) Exactly. She has to be able to present her perspective on the situation and us to be able to understand her perspective. But at the same time, Percy, Annabeth, and Grover are the protagonists, and they still have to Mm -hmm. find a way to, like, come out of the situation. Like, Carter is really good about emphasizing this, I feel like, that it's not that she is evil, Echidna in this case, and every monster we face, but it's that their desires are oppositional to ours. And so we have to fight them. We cannot both succeed. Yes. We cannot both Um, succeed in this situation. But we are being introduced to different perspectives on demigods and who's a monster. And in this case, I I feel like her perspective is almost, it's, like, related to Medusa's, but not the same in the sense that Medusa is very vindictive. Echidna is almost not. Like, she doesn't have personal beef with any of these kids. Yeah, she's not that She's just here to say, like, we are different. Like, monsters and demigods, like, have been opposing each other for eons. The way that I see my role in that tradition and the role of, like, my child who I've brought here is that I want my child to win. Yes. Either my child will win or you children will win and it will it will be my kid because I will be better. Yes. Soccer mommy. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So Which goes into her character design so well because we have to talk about her fit. That like I want my child oh. to succeed because she's my child. She's, she's dressed in a way. <laughs> she's a Karen, but also like my classmate's mom who terrorized me the most growing we up. We know someone who dresses like that. <laughs> this is exactly how she dressed. Everyone knows an echidna. 
Everyone knows one. Literally, the skinny white belt in the jeans, the white sneaker, the what looks like a very expensive little like tweed yes, the jacket, tweed the hair being pulled the back. hair, yes. two strands tied through a little metal ring in the back, the makeup being like heavy on the on the lips and the eyes and like not that much everywhere else. That's my auntie. We know her. That's literally yes. my auntie. Casting also excellent. Like she was awesome yeah. she's awesome for that part to listeners for whom this reference might register she to me is strongly giving barbara hershey specifically as cora in once upon a time <gasps> that maybe it's like the, lips that, not just that, the way that it's not campy her delivery no she has her carriage up and back and proper but she still is giving you high drama because she has such a like compelling, like lower emotional, like an energetic end of the spectrum that she can give you so little and so like regular as like the two ways of like bookending her like dramatic range in the scene that she can like, it's never, it's never unhinged. It's never leaping out, but it is giving frightening and strange and not normal <laughs> it's not normal it's not normal but it's someone you know which is the most eerie part of it all i think mm -hmm. exactly i can say i feel like she's also like really plays into how good she is at it like how good she mm -hmm. is at like raising her kids to hunt this way she's a good mom yeah you believe that she is a like competent mom exactly the chimera is like Literally, like, one of the hardest villains we've seen so far to, like, face off against. We're leveling up. Yeah, yeah we're dude. leveling up. We're leveling up fast, and it is quick. Like, the, yes. the like death is right over your shoulder with this one. It makes you wonder, like, who else she's got under her belt, you know? Yes. And who else we're going to face. There's so many little pieces of dialogue we should shout out. We also, like, I do want to shout out the conversation they have with the cop. Also, I love that actor from Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. He's so good in that show. We haven't gotten to see too much of how the mist interacts with the mortal world yet. And that really comes up, mm -hmm. I think, in The Lightning Thief with, like, the police chasing Percy across the country. Mm -hmm. So it's good to get a little nod to that and also... A nod to like after Annabeth is talking about the power structures that be in the real world, them running into a cop, mm -hmm. you know, and having a see, very yeah. serious conversation with that cop. I think that's a really important connection to tie up there that's, right yeah. away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Percy saying, listen, lady, I don't know who you are, but I think I know what you are. We've run across a few monsters like you and we've sent them all packing. What happened? <laughs> it's so funny because we just had this long conversation about monstrosity. Where did it go? At the same time, my first reaction was not even, like, what happened to Percy's ideological framework. It was, he looks like a baby Ryan Reynolds. This is how Ryan yeah. Reynolds, like, it is that school of, like, mm-mm-mm, like, white boy comedic sass, which makes sense. For the listeners who do not know or remember, Walker Scoville's, like, big first gig was playing ryan reynolds as a child in like a big movie that came out two years ago mm -hmm. <laughs> and clearly it made an impact i do feel a little bit on edge with percy saying i don't know who you are but i think i know what you are because yeah i feel like he has this understanding from sally that he should always pay attention to know that like not everyone who looks like a hero is a hero not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster but the more time he spends in the real world and has to cut off women's heads the more he's like forgetting that a little bit i know i'm really reading into this like way too much and it's only been 24 hours no request, but like is true please he's do. Like, desensitizing he is already desensitized to the violence yeah i agree i think it's also him being 12 years old and having to get launched into this immediately like the Absolutely. way kids handle violence and trauma mm -hmm. 
immediate adapting. Right. And immediately Mm -hmm. like categorizing the world around him so that he knows how to be safe. It's easier to say, I don't know your story and I don't have time to listen to your villain monologue, but I think I know you're a monster. So let's just get the fight over with and I'll send you packing hands on hips. Deal with it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I feel like that like maybe he's still carrying forward this idea that like we don't know what a monster looks like. Monstrosity could look like anything, but he is still maintaining this category that like some people are good and some people need to be killed and that maybe there is some sort of underlying strict categorical like universally objectively observable difference between those categories oh spending too much time with annabeth Mm. but then she quickly complicates that like echidna does not give him like one beat to just sit in that and like be catty like echidna's response is quote Monsters like me. Well, monster is an odd word, considering my grandmother is your great-grandmother. And this has always been a family story. Dare we say the thesis of the episode? Yes, totally. I really love this subject because it is so much just like perspective. It's just your perspective in this. And I think like talking about like him kind of going into like labeling her into that so quickly and not thinking twice about it i feel like this is also like one of those things that it becomes what every demigod ends up being which is like they're a pawn to like their their parents problems you know and like kind of this is exactly what the gods would want is for the demigod to strike and not think twice mm-hmm. you know and and clean the board you know so it's it kind of something that i hope maybe they uh talk about more as we progress through this series you know yeah. like kind of keep bringing it yeah. up but yeah. making it a family thing too is very beautiful because when you think about family when they let you down or when something happens like it's that radical love you have to have like the bell hooks all about love like you have to radically accept your family sometimes like and, and sometimes you don't you know there's there's total nuances but her bringing in that nuance and saying listen like I am your auntie, actually. Like, you can't avoid that. And you're going to have to face me, whether that be with violence or a violent fight, or if we're going to sit here and talk about it right now, like, you can't avoid that fact. Mm -hmm. And Greek mythology is just one big family drama. And also, our patrons will know we mentioned this um, in our watch along. But this is a line that I feel like I can recall Rick saying many times in the past several years of discussing his work, that this was a family story. It was a bedtime story that he told to his son and that Becky helped him write that has always been like a product of their family. And so for them, it is also a family story, which I think just adds like a beautiful little layer on top of this line, which is delivered so specifically to be impactful with her, like, you know, staring directly almost at the camera, perfectly in the middle of the frame, and then cutting to the reaction on all the kids' faces after she says that, where they're like, uh, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. <laughs> I think also it's it's kind of a nice nod to community building as well and chosen family because right now mm. Percy's on a quest with Annabeth and Grover mm. and that's his chosen family for this journey. And so they also have to grapple with the fact that they're building their own family and like, are they going to go with blood relations? Like, is are they going to believe what the gods are saying, what the monsters are saying? All of those questions are starting to come up with this line. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Yeah, I think it's time to make it to St. Louis. So you watch the episode, you know what happens. Little Chihuahua 
Percy gets stabbed with the stinger. Annabeth uses the knife. It's all very epic. We get off the train. Police are chasing us. We're in St. Louis. Annabeth is like, I know where we're going to go. I know where we're going to go. And she's talking about the arch and the temple to Athena. And there's this upside down reflection shot of the St. Louis arch in a puddle after they run through it. And I was like, the St. Louis arch has never been more hot. You know, they want <laughs> Disney Plus wanted us to look at that and be like, dang, that's a nice arch. We are glamorizing. St. Yes, Louis like, Arch. go off, Arch. Like, it is the star of this episode. <laughs> it's true. Let's be honest. They know we're all watching. All of us readers are watching. Yes, they knew that this was, like, what we were looking for. <laughs> yeah. They're like, how about a reflection of the Arch and its beauty right here for you? No, it's like, so no true. person so who isn't a Percy Jackson fan or, like, an architecture student is going to feel, like, as emotionally enraptured by this upside-down <laughs> reflection shot of the St. Louis Arch. <laughs> and yet we do, when we get to the Arch, the sh- the filming is very reverent. The setup is this like very like warm scoring that includes like a vocal chorus from one of the few times in the score. Um, we like get this shot that like crosses over of like kids with like the fountain in the foreground crossing up to like see the whole thing. We have this voiceover of Annabeth explaining all of these architectural details about how precise and perfect the symmetry is. Monument to perfection. Monument to perfection. This Oof. is how you show Athena your love. We're also like this whole thing is giving us like a slightly different side of Annabeth in the sense that we like know that she is we know that she is smart and commanding and but but I think this is the first time we've seen her be like passionate <laughs> about something like a nerd. affirmatively express like nerdiness and like love for for something. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense in the book why they would come here because of the gods being the flame of Western civilization that is a metaphor for the traveling powers and stuff like that. And then we get come here to this place that is like a symbol of the westward advancement, westward advancement, which is also a part of the gods and everything. But now, like we we realized Carter and I literally realized watching this episode last night that like that hasn't come up yet. We haven't talked at all in the show about why the gods are here, but we're still here at the arch. Yeah. And then this is where we get this conversation. Annabeth says it's a monument to perfection, etc. And Grover says it's a monument to some other stuff, too, while they're walking through the exhibit. For those of you who have not been, the like entire like basement of the arch is a large museum about manifest destiny and westward expansion and the violences that went along with the United States consuming like the western half of the continent like as they're having this discussion like grover never says the phrase manifest destiny or um the extinction of the bison or colonialism it's definitely all there though too even them traveling by train feels like reference to you know the feeling of manifest destiny right Mm -hmm. the cross-continental railroad right was literally built in a sense that like that's like one of the first things i feel like we learn in school about the manifest destiny is like kind of people Mm -hmm. literally going west to build this Mm -hmm. train that can take them across the country to take it over so i feel like you're hitting the nail on the head although it's not mentioned well it shows up in the shots like Grover yeah. doesn't say the words, but like he says something and then they just yeah. have like a still shot of the wall of the museum that has like a gigantic painting of two yeah. settlers like shooting a bison and the phrase manifest destiny on one side. And like in the corner of the image, the famous painting of like the woman who is meant to be the metaphor for manifest destiny, Ooh, yeah. like walking westward oh, yeah. and she like has mm-hmm. her hands trailing behind her and there's like power lines yeah. and railroads mm-hmm. appearing and there are people running away from her in the Yes. Front. Yeah, literally. Um, yeah. Yes. That painting is in the episode. Yeah. 
Um, even though none of the kids are explicitly using that word. This scene was a, one of the highlights of the episode for me. I thought it was really neat to like kind of touch on the subject and another really great way to yeah. introduce like yes. what's going to be like Grover's real mm-hmm. passion and pursuit in, in his story, you know? And to put Annabeth and Grover as ideological opponents now, because I think yes. we've, we've seen a lot of Percy and Annabeth opposing one another, but Annabeth is really like not interested in having this conversation with Grover right now. Um, you know, she shuts him down with like, I'm talking about what it actually is as a temple to her mom, etc. And Percy's just kind of like hanging in the back. And it's nice to see a little bit of conflict between these two characters. Again, yes. I can't wait to see what happens yeah. with Grover going forward. And for Grover to basically like stick with it and like not seed any ground, he is trying to still provide the perspective that like the linkage between the arch being a temple of Athena and the arch being a symbol of like violence in America's colonial project are like yeah. related. You know, like exactly. we're not yeah. having the Western civilization conversation, but it's there. <laughs> it's in the room with us. It's in the room literally. with us. And I think it's also having us question who's the holder of knowledge and what knowledge is important because Annabeth coming, like being a child of Athena is when you control knowledge or books or any sort of situation like that, like you have history in your hands, but Grover's coming from the natural world and the natural perspective of having nature and oral stories potentially come to the forefront when we're thinking about history. Yes, absolutely. That's so true. And I think it's interesting how that relates to like the gods in general. Who's telling the story? Who's telling the story, right? To these demigods. Mm -hmm. Is it Echidna's side or is it Zeus's side? Yeah, yeah. It kind of all, wow. And I love, you know, you love how Rick is like, we're going to teach you some history while we're while we're doing this show, by the way. <laughs> yeah. And the, the hip perspective on history is definitely different now than oh, it yeah. was in 2005. Totally. When wow. we were first yeah. at the arch, you know, I'm sure the exhibit has been updated, you know, and so we update this scene <laughs> as well. Um, we got to push forward. Another Persepeth scene. They have another very cute moment of connection here. Percy does a little Athena impression with a British accent. This is very important to me. We have to see them being goofy. They are little kids. It's It's very adorable. This is also when Percy starts to look very ill, very sick. I was like, hmm, is the lighting weird here? Or does he look kind of pale as he is getting poisoned by the chimera, which I think is such a smart tool to make the story Mm -hmm. more urgent and to up the stakes of this moment and to really build Mm -hmm. it into this mid-season finale that it is. Not technically because there's no episode break, you know, after this, but you know what I mean. The rising tension at the end of Act One. But they could have had one. Yeah. We're, we're like following up on this previous conversation that they had about like parentage and about conditionality of love. But in this case, we're focusing more on the godly parent side where, you know, like we're in a temple of Athena. Annabeth is basically saying like, I think that it's fate that we're here. And I know that you think that that's a little bit ridiculous because you don't have that relationship to your parents. And Percy is like, I didn't say anything. It sounds like you, and like subtext, like I think that you are having some doubts. Basically like Annabeth is starting to internalize Percy's perspective on this, that like she can hear his voice starting to say like, well, I don't know if it's fate that we are here um, and you are giving your mom too much credit and you are like (laughs) allowing breadcrumbs of affection from your mom to spin into something grander for you that is maybe not healthy or appropriate. I think the breadcrumbs of affection kind of (laughs) hurts my heart a little bit because she's been living off of that for like her entire life. And she left her home to chase Mm -hmm. that sort of affection and attention. But I think it now connects back to Percy and Annabeth talking right now in that moment, that mutual respect and that building of friendship happening again in the scene where Percy's like, Hey, I'm not, 
like he doesn't say it, but you can see that he's not just giving her breadcrumbs of affection. He's giving her full honesty and yes. he's giving her his opinion on things. I, I know Annabeth's starting to see it, but I think it's a really cool visual thing of we're starting to see now Annabeth is realizing what love might be. Yeah, for sure. Well, like, love and friendship. <laughs> like as they're disagreeing here, I, I would say it's even progressed beyond what we saw the last time where like he actively is trying to be empathetic and use mm-hmm. emotional intelligence and like <laughs> not like misrepresent his ideas, but like step around moments no. where he knows that she's going to be sensitive about something and not press on that and instead like lean in a different direction into just what his perspective is and how his relationship is tough and specifically he has a line here where he couches and he's like oh like you know it is true that like i have a bad relationship with my parents but i just got here and like you like i'm sure that whatever you conclusion you have come to is probably right for you so respectful so starting to learn how to respect people And for both of them, yeah, like their their relationships with other kids have been weird. It's not just that they like are like meeting each other and having this exchange. Like for both of them, like they are not used to like having people like where they're trying to reach a mutual understanding that is not immediate and obvious. And where like they are trying to be like thoughtful and considerate and like use their empathy and critical um, engagement skills. They're growing up together yeah. and they're developing as people together. I think that honesty that you said that comes from him, like him just kind of being just upfront and honest about uh, about his feelings all the time, even to someone like as hard to stand up to as Annabeth, right, is something that ends up building respect between the two of them. And yeah, I, really, yeah, yeah. I really like that continuing through the story. It's really something I hope uh-huh. kind of builds in that way. I think it will. Yeah. This is where Annabeth says, careful, I think you were about to call me a friend. Somewhere the oracle is la and then Percy collapses, which is so good because, of course, Annabeth is thinking what we're thinking, which is don't call him a friend because the second you call him a friend, right, someone's right. going to betray somebody. Like, obviously, that's where her brain is going, because even though she told Percy to not worry about the prophecy, she's thinking about the prophecy. The delivery of this line, the writing of this line, it is perfect. The, like, Chekhov's gun was gunning. Chekhov's don't it use was- the word friend. <laughs> Amazing payoff as a line to to highlight the ambiguity of where we are and to like th- for Annabeth to like acknowledge the ambiguity of the situation to throw things into it to s- spice it up but not resolve anything to to yeah. highlight the way things have changed but also to be like are we in four years going to be like enemies, good collaborators, good friends. <laughs> Who knows? Last week, I feel like the word I kept coming back to was Shakespearean and I couldn't really articulate why. But now I think I understand oh. because we know how hard they were thinking about book fans when making this show. There is mm-hmm. an undeniable level of dramatic irony every dramatic time irony. you step up the betrayal. Like, even though not everybody is participating in the dramatic irony because it's not spelled out, we are participating in, like, the contextual dramatic irony as fans of the books. Every time something like this happens, it's like a little wink-wink, nod-nod, nudge-nudge to the listeners. Because, of course, the person who's going to betray him, he already called his friend, literally, in the second episode. (laughs) And the betrayal has already happened. And that is genius and brilliant. Um, (laughs) I'm going to push us forward. After the collapse, we take Percy outside and we splash him with fountain water because we thought that that might heal him, which is so cute and funny. I have a question about this. So it doesn't heal him. And I'm wondering a lot about that. Because I'm like, you know, he controls the water in the fountain at the Met. Then it's like, here, it's not really playing in any sort of part. Oh, I think it has something to do with the whole Athena isn't helping. 
Yes. Like, that yeah, yeah. this is her temple, and she's blocking Poseidon oh, from yeah. helping okay. right now, okay. and that she is pissed that because of the impertinence. I think the yeah. lore here, exactly, is that we are all questioning our relationships to our parents and questioning the role that the gods should have in our lives, even though we have this extra proximity to them. And that, like, Percy, like, this whole time, like, we opened with the scene in the swimming pool, right? Like, we know that he doesn't have like a perfect relationship with the water at this point. He doesn't have control yes. over his powers. He doesn't understand them. I think the like in universe lore is consistent that he just like, he's has a lot of uncertainty and he has no control and it's not working. It's not working. That's what I thought too. I was like, I think it's, an, it's a matter of experience. Experience. It's a matter of perspective. It's a matter of confidence and mm-hmm. embracing confidence. your father. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that he is going to be able to level up until he accepts yeah. being a son of Poseidon, right? And accepts that this is his yeah. destiny, which is what happens Think about what that means and how he is oh, going man. to relate to that. Oh, the end of this episode, we'll get there, but so, it's so good. Uh, the subtle power-up, we haven't even really talked about, but like truly, like getting to the build-up to the end of the episode is so well done. Like you don't even notice that it's really happening, but this is his big hero moment where he is accepting his identity, both as a son of Sally Jackson and unfortunately as a son of Poseidon, but only by way of, of Sally, you know? Um, but mm-hmm. anyway, you've seen the episode. I'm not going to run through every detail, but shout out to that random extra who is walking by the screen looking really confused and concerned as they're splashing water <laughs> on Percy. Hilarious. That's important. <laughs> I want to know if the mist covered that up at all or if he just saw them splashing Percy with water, you know? Like, that's not a mythological <laughs> happening. I don't I don't think there was mist. I'm going to say there's exactly. mist. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was exactly. just kids in the fountain. <laughs> the the cut to that scene, like the, is just so funny though. It's just like the comedic level in this show has been hitting really well, and I feel like that just points to it. Like, like you you're wondering how Rick's like book comedy is going to transfer to the show, and I feel like he's kind of nailing it in moments like that because you right. are, you are the onlooker. Exactly, like you're, just, you're just like laughing at this thing. Yeah, that's us walking by. The fact that Annabeth is finally ready to ask her mom for help at the exact moment that because of Percy's actions, there are consequences that prevent her from being able to do that. That is so oof. Ouchie. Ouchie, Percybeth. Because Annabeth is like, wow, maybe it is okay for me to ask my mom for help. I've been spending a little bit much time around Percy. My perspectives are changing. But also because I've been spending a little bit of time around Percy, I am now a bad kid. Yeah. I'm impertinent. I've hurt my mother's pride. We're seeing the ideological juxtapositions like spill out where like Annabeth and Percy are like now expanding and we're seeing like Athena on that spectrum as being like the even more rigid version of Annabeth on the far end Um, and her being pulled between those two poles. It's very delightful Um, and says so much about her changing relationship with the conditionality of her relationships. The chimera's approaching. Yes, we're, we're in... The elevator up to the top. Yeah, we get to the top of the arch. Annabeth immediately goes back into soldier mode, which is great because we got to see her be a little nerd. We got to see her be a little like human 12-year-old girl. And now she's back to being a general. She is in charge. She pulls the fire alarm. And the real, the real moment, I would say, the defining moment of the last (laughs) bit of this episode is, of course, the great switch where Annabeth is going to stay to fight off Echidna and Chimera. But instead, Percy does a little flip of his sword, tries to hand Riptide (gasps) to Annabeth, hilt up, and then uses the Uh sword to switch places, shove Annabeth with Grover down the stairwell, lock the door, grab Riptide, and be ready to fight at the top of the arch alone. Because what? He's a hero! This 
this is so good. This is his level up, his power up moment. He thinks he's going to die. So he's like, I might as well sacrifice myself. Poor thing really feels like he's going to die. He is the kind of hero here that you might see and say like, all tea, all shade, like a Star Wars movie or something, you know? (laughs) All tea, all shade. (laughs) It is like level one. I have powers. I will show some responsibility. I will do a thing that is for the greater good. I will sacrifice myself personally. For my friend. Always for his friend. The choice is like ridiculous. What is, is he going to slow down the chimera at all? No, he's not. He has no ability here. What he is doing (laughs) is, it is giving 12-year-old boy level one clouded by bravado attempt to be useful and helpful to the quest. He literally has no but shot. But also, like, maybe he's dying right now because yeah. of the poison. No <laughs> shot. Doesn't he... He says it, too. He goes, He goes. well, I'm not going to make it to the next place. Yeah. So, Annabeth, you gotta go. Like, I'm already poisoned. It's time for me to go. Yeah. And then the chimera, you guys, it's so cute. She's so pretty. She has these She's big, so gigantic paws. She looks like a little baby. It looks like a baby. Yeah, the design was beautiful. Probably one of the best monsters. Yes. Like, it has me so amped for the rest of this series. Like, that is so sick. Yeah, totally. All of the monsters on the Princess Andromeda... They're gonna slay. They're gonna melt our brains and blow our minds. Because I love the commitment to, we're not just gonna give you what you think you know what a chimera looks like. Because why would we do that? Mm. Boring, played out, dead. (laughs) In adorable little monster tiger with snakeskin. Yeah, mythology purists, it is true. This is not a chimera in a classical sense. It is not a lion, goat, snake. What it is, though, is what we need for this moment. And it looks sick. And it looks original. Classicists, this is not Hercules, you know? I think that that's important. We are evolving this story out of Greek mythology, but we are inherently Mm -hmm. questioning the value of those stories as we are telling this one, Mm -hmm. you know? And Mm -hmm. we are saying this is not the one definitive true way to look at these things, and we are going to break these things down differently and present them to you in a new way through Percy's character and also through the chimera. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and then as he falls, as he falls from the arch, you guys, this was just so well done. It was so fast paced. Again, I could see the critique that people are going to be like, the battle wasn't long enough. There needed to be more fighting, but I think it's very no, important. That's that there's as limited fighting as possible. But that's incorrect. That's incorrect. And he yeah. is losing. There's not going to be a battle. The point of this, these like 30 seconds is that Percy cannot stand a chance to this. He is not going to fight Echidna, who is not even turning into her full monster form. She remains a like prissy, upper middle class lady until the end. It's like she's watching her, her daughter nail a basketball match, you know? She's like, good job, <laughs> exactly. my daughter is winning. She literally is a mom basketball coach. She's just like <laughs> standing on the, the court side, just yes. watching it happen. It's so true. I, about him like falling through just talking about this all has kind of made me realize maybe like more symbolism and uh the perfect structure cracking the the visual of that visual of like percy being the the cause like to expose it and being thrown out because of it i thought that's really i i hadn't thought about that until now it's really interesting to me athena said i will throw that boy out of my temple (laughs) The, the cut to it where it's just silence and you're just watching him fall love that Love yes, that. exactly. Oh These my shots awesome. are perfect. Wide shot, entire arch, no sound, small like dot falling down. You can hear the yes, wind. That's right. Like you're in his perspective, tumbling. Yeah, I saw the I saw the video of you guys reacting to the the shaky camera. Love that because that's how I was like, oh my god, we're in it. I like how they changed it from the book where in the book he just 
jumps right off and the water's right there. But that's not true. The arch is not over the water. You are actually that, very that's far That's the funny the part about all of this is that and, it is answering the decades-long fan question of how do we deal with the fact that the arch isn't above um, the water and you can't fall into the river. Stunning. I think it was stunning because I was like, that, he's going to hit the ground. He's going to hit the ground. I was like, he is. You see the ground tumbling under him. Oh, and yeah. Like, the way that the camera tumbles back and you see, like, it approaching out of the corner until it is, like, full of it. And then you see the water, like, hitting the camera. Oh. Oh, my God. It's so satisfying. Yeah. And the cuts back and forth to black and then back. In the river, the, like, bam, bam, bam of the, like, flashes of tumble. That felt sick. Like, I'm hoping they do that so much more to keep expressing the way that his power kind of aligns with the strength of like the ocean and like what, what it can feel like and like tides. and like, Yes. That is what the ocean feels Absolutely. like. Absolutely. It's an awesome expression. I think of like the big three and kind of the way that like being a demigod of one of those three parents feels like a set apart. The sheer force of it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Mm-hmm. Totally. It was mm-hmm. really sick. Yeah. I think a lesser show would have ended the episode there. You know, a simpler show, a lesser writer's room would have been like, that's the cliffhanger. Does he survive? But no, that's not what this story is about. That's this not. story is about a boy deciding to be a certain kind of hero and also a rela- boy's relationship with his mom. That is what the story is about. And so in the water, he's trying to get up. His foot is like stuck under a rock. And then the Nereid comes and it looks like a jellyfish kind of like some kind of beautiful yeah. ethereal <laughs> not of this world and certainly doesn't belong in the disgusting mississippi river stunning creature and speaks the words that sally spoke at the beginning of the episode which of course it is a statement about calming and statement about bracing it is a statement about the literal fact that we are going to get percy's actual first power up <laughs> literally Literally, and the breathing. fact that the power up is oh delivered God. this way, it is not Percy like using it for the first time in a battle. It is Percy surviving, having grace, making connections, having a broader idea about what the family story is. Mm-hmm. Wow! Oh yeah! Wow! Wow! I can't get over the way that I know exactly what happens in this book. <laughs> And yet, in this moment, I was like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I was so gripped in. Like, I was like, he can't breathe underwater. He'll die. He'll suffocate. He's going to die, you know? (laughs) He's going to die. The way they do this TV show is the battles aren't huge and magnificent. And there isn't, like, jump scares or monsters coming right into the frame. It's all so understated and so beautiful in that way of discovering who you are in a battle because I think a lot of the Percy Jackson battles written in the books are his internal struggle while he's in the middle of war Um, absolutely and so and so showing more of that internal struggle on screen is I think super effective Yes. Yes. And you know what? That always makes me think of Linda Holmes, famous advocate of not having big battle burnout. And, you know, today, Mm -hmm. Wednesday, January 3rd, this is a historic day because today is the day that NPR Pop Culture Happy Hour covered Percy Jackson with Linda Holmes as the (gasps) lead host. Oh, I haven't heard it yet. The episode is out. Oh, yeah. Yes. I just want to say shout out to Linda. Linda, we love Um, you. We love you. You should have had us on. That's okay. We'll love the episode. (laughs) Maybe for season two. There you go. Okay, we'll transition to our closing questions here. And Yunwen, since you're a first-time guest, I'm going to force you to (laughs) go through our closing question. Let's do it. Showrunner extraordinaire John Steinberg said that they are trying to create a show with Percy Jackson here that is four different shows at once, four angles at once. A show for kids, 
a show for adults, a show for fans, and a show for first-time viewers of this story. So how do you feel that this episode has succeeded in those four angles? I think the episode follows a chronological timeline that we're able to easily follow, but also throughout the timeline, we're questioning what it's like to be a kid during a violent time and a time where you have to make a lot of very difficult choices like killing people and (laughs) saving your friends. But then from an adult perspective, I think watching it as I'm 24 now, and I think I started reading Percy Jackson, I was like 10 or something, learning that even as an adult, you do have to think about these choices and you do have to think about your moral compass a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and watching kids do that, 12-year-olds do that, is something that, I don't know, yeah, it feels important. And I think also as a first-time viewer to the show, like I said before, I think I respect the, that the fight scenes are understated because I personally don't like to watch really long-winded fight scenes. Like, again, like the fight fatigue. I like more thinking about what's going on it, <laughs> inside someone's head because it takes so much to, like, kill someone or want to be violent towards someone and I think Echidna having that huge monologue saying listen this is why I am violent this is why you guys deserve to die like today right now violence isn't for the sake of violence violence is happening because someone has pushed you to that or or you have been pushed towards it by some outside factors and I think it's very temporal today and in today's time as well like why does violence happen and I think as a first-time viewer for kids and adults both that works really well Thank you, Yunwen. The last thing we have to take care of today is nominations for the Nori Awards for this episode. We need an award from everybody, and then we will choose a category for everybody to vote on on our Spotify polls. Does anyone want to start? I think that my award is going to be, let's call it the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor Nori Award. Um <laughs> which in this situation is going to go to Aryan's line delivery at the end of the beautiful, heartwarming sleepover scene. Specifically the, uh, he is a Zoe's Perfect. <laughs> I think I'm going to give the inaugural Little Smirk by Leah Save Jeffries Award for the Little Smirk by Leah Save Jeffries in this episode when she is talking to Percy in the St. Louis Arch because he keeps making her laugh and she keeps not wanting to laugh. And she keeps hiding that laugh through a little smirk where she is not going to let that laugh out. But you can see it at the end of episode three and you see it a bit here. And that is going to be something that we see, I think, for the next 10 years of our lives. And I love it. Yes. (laughs) I'm going to give the architectural nerdy accuracy Nori Award to the St. Louis Arch I'm going to imagine that they launched the camera off of the St. Louis Arch and just had it fall (laughs) Um, to show us that Percy was going to hit the ground. And that answers the age-old question. And I thought it was so funny. It's for the nerds. Yes. It's for the arch nerds. I'm going to give the World Building Awesomeness Award to the show in general because I really am loving so much of that. Just kind of getting to see how this mythology is going to tie into all parts of the country outside of Camp Half-Blood is so fun in this first book and just like moments like getting just to see the centaurs run in that awesome like truly Midwest looking landscape because I think people talk about what they think the Midwest looks like and then they're like is what the Midwest looks like moments like that in the show it's just pulling me in absolutely Carter what should we have people vote on my proposal is that we do the most tiger mother 
award for the episode no to way, link through the season. Camara is oh. a tiger. Camara looks like a tiger. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Where the nominees would be um, Echidna, like lecturing the Chimera um, on the train about getting ahead of itself. Um, getting ahead of herself. Sorry, she uses she her pronouns. Um, <laughs> Athena for um, <laughs> punishing her daughter's um, impertinence with um, nearly death, and then like I guess Sally <laughs> at the swimming pool being like, "You gotta let go. <laughs> it's time to swim." <laughs> Thank you, Carter. Brilliant. <laughs> Everybody, make sure you vote on most tiger mother scene in this episode. And Yunwen, where can people find you on the internet? Hi, everyone. You can find me at Cute Sunny Angel on TikTok. And then my Instagram is linked as well. But I post about Sunny Angels, Bebe Chichis, and all things like that. Yay! <laughs> and Jake, where can people find you online? You can find me on Instagram at JakeSweat34, J A K E S W E A T, just like the word. Three, four. Do you want to promote your letterbox? Same ad. Same <laughs> ad on my letterbox. Very lucky to have it on there. This year, I'm making a point to log every single thing I watch on letterbox because I am I have been someone to watch a lot and not log all of it. So this year, though, I'm becoming a pro. I'm going to get it all. I'm going to become a letterbox addict. It's, <laughs> it's amazing. Letterbox influencer era. Yes. I just want to say, like, thank you so much for having me on the pod this is like so much fun to do all this to, especially to share the space with someone new too this is so exciting like yes. seriously thanks so for having awesome. me seriously yeah. i've been a long time fan so real i feel honored to be a part of like the conversation around the show in any way like this this is like yeah. so, so us too Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I should say this episode is dropping Thursday, tomorrow, Friday. We have a very special episode coming out. It's a conversation on episodes one through four with staff writer Daphne Olive, lovely, wonderful, favorite person on the planet of ours. And that will be out tomorrow. So make sure you have your notifications set and you're following Seaweed Brain and you can listen to that as soon as it drops. All right, y'all. We will see you next time. Bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. <laughs>